1, 26 through 2, 25. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, or the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and the one that flowed around the whole land of Havla, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlam and Onyx stone are there, and the name of the second river is the Gion. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, well, I, I remember the first time I heard this song, 
and, I, and then I remember like the tenth time I heard this song because the first time I heard this song, I was completely puzzled by it. And it's an old song now. It's funny because it was so formative for me in like high school and college, but it's this song called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart by the band Wilco. Anybody remember that band? They're still active. Okay. Yeah. Any like mid-millennials and older, we, we were formed by that song. If you're more towards the Gen Z side of the spectrum, you're like, who's that dad band? Um, but Wilco were a, uh, well, I won't give the whole backstory, but they started off as kind of a, a country rock band. They're from Chicago. And over the course of their first few records, they started introducing a lot more like genre experimentation and sonic experimentation. Things basically just got weirder. Like weird country music is what it became. And then they were working on this album called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which, uh, which took massive risks in terms of even more experimentation. And they described it as basically having these simple folk songs that they would just twist and screw and change and add layers of distortion and feedback and weirdness and noise on top of until they were almost unrecognizable. Um, it was an album that actually got them dropped from their music label. Uh, the album was so strange that they turned in that they were, they were dropped and then they ended up actually getting picked up again by the same company but by a different subsidiary that put the record out. Sure enough, it became critically regarded as one of the best pieces of music of that year. Um, but the opening song is called I Am Trying to Break Your Heart and it, it just starts with this kind of rush of noise and weird things and things fading in and out. And like, what, what, is that a musical instrument? What is that? Uh, until Je Jeff Tweedy starts singing his enigmatic lyrics. The first, first few phrases are, I am an American aquarium drinker. I assassin down the avenue. I remember being like hearing this for the first time. I was already a fan of the band, but being like, what? <laughs> what is, what am I hearing? This is so strange. That was the first time I heard it. And then I remember let's call it the 10th time I heard it. Because I, you know, I was listening, reading about all the hype of this album. It's supposed to be so good, et cetera, et cetera. So I kept coming back like, surely there's something for me in here. And then one day, it, did, it just opened up. It blossomed for me. And suddenly all these disparate parts began to make sense. And when, in this chaos, I began to feel like, oh, there's actually deep beauty in here. And these lyrics, you know, what seemed strange to me at first, the poetry and the, the way the, these strange images kind of work together to kind of create this dystopic picture of, of life uh, in our world and in our country even suddenly kind of clicked into place. And I thought, oh, I get this. This is beautiful. It doesn't just have to be weird songs. It doesn't just have to be songs that take listen upon listen to open up to themselves. You could ask the same question about any of them. What does a favorite song, what does a a song in general have to do with God? Like, is my enjoyment of that song just a distraction, as we mentioned two weeks ago? Is it something that's just sort of devoid from the real stuff that matters, the real stuff of faith? And if you've been following along in this series so far, you may begin to suspect that the answer to that is, is no, there is some connection. However they did it, Let's just take this particular song in weaving together these strange sounds and these strange instruments and weird ways of using a guitar and a strange, strange drum beat that felt, to me, totally revolutionary at the time. They're taking the raw material of sound, sonic frequencies, banging around, and they're, they're through using their instruments and their skill and recording, you know, a tape deck or whatever it was, they're, they're 
taking this, these frequencies and they're jamming it together into something that is capable of like instilling a deep sense of awe and appreciation and causing you to think about your life and about your country and about your function within it. They are doing the work of cultivation, of cultivation, taking what's raw, sound, and our ear's capacity to receive sound and then to translate it into some kind of meaning. And they're doing that work. They're doing that work. We'll come back to that. But we're in a series uh, that we started just three weeks ago called The God of Every Good Thing. And where we're trying to, as it says there, a little tagline, we're trying to find the goodness and the beauty and the grace of God in all that he has lovingly given. Two weeks ago, we started just with the very first phrase of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And specifically asking the question, like, who is this God who was there in the beginning, the one who created? And we looked at even, uh, if you jump forward to the Gospel of John, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying to the Father, and he declares that before anything else existed, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was there being loved and loving his Father. So we get this, the Bible claims something totally unique in that, yes, the doctrine of the Trinity, God exists as three persons in one. We just sang about that amazing truth. But within that Godhead, he existed in a relationship of love. So before he ever created, he didn't need to create to be a God of love. It's who he is in and of himself. And that that fact has massive implications for everything else. So that was two weeks ago. Last week, then, we looked at kind of the whole of Genesis chapter 1, and, you know, briefly and, and through kind of one particular set of questions. But we looked how then this God, this God who is just self-giving love at core, then it makes total sense that when he creates, he creates a world of beauty. He creates a world of incredible creativity. He creates a world that can rightly be understood as a generous gift towards the people that, that the scriptures declare are the pinnacle of that creation. So it's not just a God who gives, but then he gives every single crazily detailed individual good thing that populates this created world. Like he is a giver who has given something very, very good in the words of Genesis 1. Very good. So now we turn our attention not from creation just in the big picture, but as the Bible does, it, it includes this first narrative of the creation of humanity, but then chapter 2 kind of zooms in and gives you like this more detailed story of the creation of humanity, and it focuses on humanity's role in this world. So if the first, first one was the God who gives, the second week was every good thing, this is now considering that he gives these good things to and through his image bearers in creation. That's what we're doing. Let's pray. Lord, these are, these are heavy things, and I am struck once again by, it's sort of a fool's task, Lord, to, to take these so complicated and deep and rich passages of the scripture, the creation account, Lord, that just lays the foundation for everything else that follows in your word and to try to, try to, try to pick it apart for 40 minutes or whatever, Lord. I just pray for grace in the task. I pray for your 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 wisdom, Lord, to be upon me. I pray for your truth to be communicated, Lord. And even as we kind of just look at this from one particular angle, I pray that it would be truthful, that we would honor what you have put in this text. We would humble ourselves before it, that we would submit ourselves to it, Lord, and that you would speak through your word this morning. 
We want to encounter you. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, three main movements that I want to consider from from this long stretch of Genesis that, that was just read for us. The first is this. The idea of humans as the image of God. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that is probably not a brand new idea to you. You've probably got some, some you know, concept of this. But it all comes, it all begins in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And he goes on, let us... Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, it says he did, he did do this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So all of humanity, male and female alike, are created in the image of God. And then I just maybe would mention here as well, Jumping ahead to Genesis 2-7, we have this little one verse, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So what does it mean that humankind is made in the image of God? Um, well, I think, first of all, it's really helpful to get a sense of how that word for image uh, the Hebrew salem is used in the ancient world. Uh, and I'll just go to, to scholar John Walton on this. He's, he's an expert on such things. He says, in the ancient world, an image was believed in some ways to carry the essence of that which it represented. So an idol image of a deity designated by the same terminology used here was used in worship because it contained the deity's essence. You probably have thought of that idea, you know, rival religions with these little images, these little idols of gods that are meant in some sense to serve as a stand-in and to contain the essence of that god in some way. Plenty of religions around the world use idols like this today. But he says, this does not suggest the image could do what the deity did or that it looked exactly the same as the deity. Rather, the deity's work was thought to be accomplished through the idol. The Hebrew word salem is representative, is a representative in physical form, not a representation of the physical appearance. So this is interesting. If it is the case that the Hebrew, the, the Jewish author here of, of the book of Genesis has this kind of framework in mind, which is very likely and very possible that they're sort of playing with this imagery, it immediately raises the question, like, aren't idols bad? Aren't idols bad? Isn't that in the Ten Commandments? Like, don't make any idols. Don't make any images of me, your God. And the answer is yes. Yes, that is strictly prohibited. Right there in the Ten Commandments, which is very serious. So what's the deal? And I've heard it said by numerous people, well, the, the reason God cares so deeply that we don't create images and idols of God is because that's what humans are for. Humans are the images and I idols, so to speak, of God. He doesn't need these mute little wood carvings or stone carvings or whatever. He has created the world with his images built into it in the, in the form of human beings. We are the ones who, in some sense, carry his essence and work out his purposes in the world. That's why he made us. And that's why we're not to make lesser images. That's what we are for. That's what you are for. If you're a human being, I assume most of you are in this room, that's what you are for. 
No, you all are. So, then raises the question, okay, if that's what humans are for, we are meant to fun- serve this similar function, we are the image and, the, and sort of the representation of God in this world, you know, what happens if we try to give a little bit more specificity to it? And it gets complicated. It gets complicated. Um, one commentator said, innumerable definitions have been suggested for the image of God. Conscience. You know, are we the image of God because we have a conscience? And he goes on, or a soul, or we have this original righteousness that the Bible talks about, or we have the ability to reason, or to use language, or we have the capacity for fellowship with God that's unique to humankind, um, and on and on and on. Is it some capacity that we've been given? Um, he goes on to say, most of these definitions are based on subjective inferences rather than objective exegesis. Uh, what he's saying is that the text doesn't lift up any of those capacities that are within us and say, well, that's what the image of God boils down to because we can do A, B, or C, or we have A, B, or C. It just doesn't say that. So it's conjecture. He goes on to say, any approach that focuses on just one aspect of a human, be that physical, spiritual, or intellectual, to the neglect of the rest of the constituent features seems doomed to failure. And I think that's right. We don't want to reduce the image of God to any one capacity. The Bible never speaks, listen to this, even after the fall, the Bible never speaks of humans losing the image of God, ever. It's not something that we lose. Even if we're far, far away from God relationally, as many are, we don't lose our image-ness. So we, can, we don't want to tie it to any sort of specific function or whatever else, because things get really dicey. Not to mention all the implications that might have for people with disabilities of certain types, and people who are comatose, and on and on and on. It's like, oh, have they, have they lost the image of God? Christian theology would always say, no, humans never lose their designation as image bearers, and that's really, really important. So what is it? I'll go back to John Walton. I like his definition. He says, the image is a physical manifestation of divine essence that bears the function of that which it represents. This gives the image bearer the capacity to reflect the attributes of the one represented and act on his behalf. In the context of Genesis 1, people act on God's behalf by ruling and subduing So we are just the image of God by virtue of being what he's made us to be, the physical representations of him. And yes, that then plays out in a role to play in this world. But if our ability ability to do that is hampered by our sin and on and on, uh, but we never lose our image-bearing-ness, if that makes sense. So that's a lot of... That's a lot of... (laughs) quoting Bible commentators there. Let's, let's get into this. What are the implications of this? What are some of them, at least? First, what, what we need to see in Genesis 1 is that there is continuity between humans, even in the image of God, and the rest of creation. We are created beings as well. We don't cross that creator-creature line. We are created beings. We are creatures, like everything else. It says we were formed out of the dirt. That's a significant image for us. We share much in common with the other land-dwelling animals. We were created on the same day, Genesis 1 says. Even if you look, get into genetics, like there's some remarkable ways in which we are very, very similar to the rest of the animal kingdom and some other animals in particular. We share much in common, and there's not anything that should scandalize us about that. Even think about at the end of, uh, at the end of day six, it's all declared very good, humans included alongside the rest of creation. 
It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we have continuity with the rest of creation. But there's also discontinuity or difference, ways in which we are not like the rest of creation, the Bible says. The Bible says, while all creation, we spent a lot of time talking about this last week, points to God in various ways, only humans are described this way and given these responsibilities. Only humans. Only you. Um, Only humans are declared to be made in the image of God. Only humans are given this kind of task, this kind of ruling task on God's behalf. We are given a truly special and important place in all creation by God. Even specifically in the Genesis 1 account, in Genesis 2, only humans talk with God, as we see. So, We are like the rest of creation in some ways. We are unlike the rest of creation in some ways. And flowing out of that second point is a third point here, is that there is the Christian, uh, the Hebrew and Christian conception of humanity bestows humans with an incredible dignity and value. Even after the fall, and this applies again, whether they are followers of God or not, because all humanity bears this image-bearing quality. This means humans have immense dignity and value, friends. And historically, Christianity has left an undeniable mark on the world in holding up uh, human dignity in all of humanity. And yeah, of course, humans have fallen far from this ideal and trampled all over it at parts. But as as, as basically its mark on the story of humanity, Christianity is responsible for holding up human dignity, and then specifically, not just specifically for powerful men, so to speak, which is often the case in most societies, but specifically for women, specifically for the poor, specifically for the disabled, specifically for the sick, specifically for infants, specifically for those in the womb, specifically for those in old age, and on and on and on. Human dignity is baked into the, the theological foundation of what we believe for all people, all people, without distinction. It's really important. These, most, of, <laughs> most of these are things that most civilized people in the 21st century would affirm, not all of them, uh, whether or not they're Christians, but that's just because we have been so thoroughly swimming in Christian waters that we take most of these ideas for granted. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I hope we can hang on to that as a culture. So maybe one last thing I would say about this, being made in the image of God, for you, I would just say this, for you and for me, what a privilege. Like, let that rest on you, like you as an individual. The Bible declares, God would declare, you image him in this world. You have this dignity and this value that can never be taken So much so, just look forward in the Christian story that the Son of God would die to rescue and redeem and save you, to bring you home when you were far away. Wow. I hope you can register that even for yourself. Okay. Image of God, number one. Number two, this image of Eden being given to the image bearers. And I'm not going to reread this whole text here that was just read for us, but just just, cap, just grab this image. In Genesis 1, we see where it's, the focus is kind of on the whole of the cosmos there, but then we zoom into this garden, and it's just this microcosm of what God's already done in the larger creation, but he's talking about this garden in Eden. 
And it's, it's this, just think of this garden as a paradise. It's a place of abundant provision. The tree of life there is right there in the middle. All kinds of trees, all kinds of beauty. It's talking about this river that's flowing out and watering these other lands, and there's these precious materials buried under the ground, all these amazing things. We already talked about last week, all of creation, and certainly it applies to this garden. This is a place where God is expressing his creativity and his beauty. He's ordering things just right to make this perfect little garden for his humans that he loves and that he cherishes. It's a gar- the garden is also, if you read on, as, as the second chapter concludes, it's a place of community and friendship. It's a place where humans are meant to multiply, and they're supposed to be families, and you extend this on, there's supposed to be whole communities built flowing out of this. A place of community, friendship, marriage, family, a place of relationship. The garden is a place of life and a place of deepest flourishing. That's the image that you're meant to take here. Deepest flourishing. I didn't know this until this week. Somehow I missed it. You know what Eden means? Hebrew word for Eden? What's that? Paradise? Paradise? I, that's a possible translation. The one that I think is the best and clearest is delight. Delight. That's what the name means. Eden means delight. It's a place meant to be delighted in. God delighted in it, and he meant for his people to delight in this garden. This speaks of the goodness we talked about last week, the toveness of this garden being not merely functional, not just it gets the job done so that humans don't die. You know, like if you dropped a human in outer space, it's not functional. They just wither up and they die. And it's going to be really gross and graphic and weird. Sorry for putting that image in your head. Um, it's not that. And it's not, so it's, it's clearly, it's not that it's non-functional, but it's not just that it's merely functional, like, ah, yes, this will get the job done. This will keep a human's head from exploding in the vacuum of space or whatever. It's that it's meant to stir delight. It's beyond just function into this sweetness, this beauty, this delight. That's why he made this garden. He's good, friends. Okay, so the garden... And all its raw materials and resources are given to the image bearers. That's my second point. But here's my third point, and this is the the heart of this message. The third point is this, the third movement is this, is that Eden is given through the image bearers. Okay, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that we created it, obviously. But look at the task that's given to the humans. Go back to Genesis 1, the first, the first account of their creation. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Skip ahead to chapter 2. Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. So what 
we take these passages together, the whole of Genesis 1 and 2, what is the task given to humans? What are they supposed to do in the garden and in the world? Well, we see a few commands here. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's procreation. Make more humans. Make more humans. Just kind of the backdrop to this, but what are those, even those more humans, what are they all supposed to do? What are the humans supposed to do? We see the language of subdue it, have dominion over it, work it, keep it. So I want to just put forward a few basic ideas for what humanity was supposed to do from, from these, these phrases we have. First, we've already said it. Enjoy God and enjoy his provision. Delight in it. One of the basic tasks is just see all this goodness, revel in it, enjoy it. A second is to rule. And this is where we connect back to, this is, this is supplying a lot of that meaning to the image of God. Rule underneath God. We don't usurp his rule. Well, that's what their humans are going to do in chapter 3. But originally, we rule underneath, alongside God, rule like him, in step with his character. In the way that he rules, we are to rule. We are to image him in that way. And with the wisdom of God. And I think that even comes in when we start talking about the two trees and God saying, Look, I've given you all of these trees to, part, you know, to partake in, but don't, don't take of this one. We're to trust him. Say, all of this provision should be enough to trust that he has my best intentions in mind. It should be enough. But of course, there is an option. There is an option to reject his wisdom and his way of doing things, his way of ruling, and to take matters into our own hands. That option is always there, represented by this tree. So we're to rule underneath God, like God, in accord with his character and with the wisdom of God, trusting him and his way of doing things. That's number two. But here's where it gets, I think, gets really interesting and maybe one area that's underthought about by, by us, certainly by me, I'll speak for myself. The third is that we are to cultivate its potential. And that's what that comes out in these words, subdue and work and keep. Cultivate its potential. Like, so often we think of the garden or the initial creation in general as just this finally perfected state. And it's perfect in the sense that sin isn't there, there are, you know, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin aren't there. Yes, it's declared very, very good. But the idea, the whole reason he says to work the land, keep the land, subdue the land, is that it has this raw potentiality that could be even better. You see that? That's the logic of, of gardening. That's the logic of cultivating. It's very, very good but I'm entrusting you, my image bearers, to take it somewhere even better. Whoa, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It's not denigrating God's work at all, but it's the dignity that he's bestowed on his image bearers to say, I want you to take this, to take this raw stuff and to make it even more functional, make it even better, make it even more beautiful in a certain sense. Cultivate its potential. And then finally, that with the multiplying, the be fruitful and multiply idea, it's, that it's to extend all of these things out. This enjoyment, this ruling, this cultivating out further and further and further to the ends of the earth by making more humans who will do this and who will do these things well with God, underneath God, with God's wisdom. Those are the basic ideas, I think, 
So I just want to explore this for a second, this idea of cultivation. And, and, and I don't know, let, try to let this sink in for us. Again, think of this idea of taking the potential of the good created world somewhere. The idea is that creation and Eden had not fully arrived at their full and final potential. So God gifts people with the joy of partnering with him in this work. So think of God, and, and this makes total sense. If we are created to image him, that he would give us this work to do. What did God do in creation? He creates, and then he's got this chaotic initial state, you know, the, the tohu vavohu, all the crazy chaos waters and all this stuff, and then he lovingly orders it over these six days into this beautiful, hospitable, inhabitable place of flourishing. Well, all that, all that work's been done, but he gives the humans a good garden. We don't get to create it out of nothing, of course. We receive it as a gift, and he says, okay, similarly, you take this good thing and make it something more. Like me, you get to play a role in this work. So we, like God, get to take something and take, make it into something even better is the logic here. But also note, like, just how dependent we are on God every step of the way in this process. That applies to the first humans. That applies to us as well. I mean, lest we get overconfident here, the raw materials are from God. We do not get to create something out of nothing. We do not get to speak things into existence. All the raw material comes from God. Second, the Bible speaks of like God, God is not like kind of a deist, like, you know, there's this idea of like the clockmaker God who said everything just right and kind of like started the thing and then backed away and it just kind of plays out. No, the Bible speaks of God actively, continually sustaining all of creation. Like even the act of watering a seed, you know, there's a predictability to it. If it has enough light, if there's enough nutrient in the soil, if it gets enough water, that seed is going to grow into something healthy. We take that for granted. If God were to stop superintending that process, the Bible claims it wouldn't work. Everything would just dissipate off into nothingness. God is actively sustaining every inch of this universe that he's made, even now, even still, even today. And he will forever because he's good. He loves it and he loves us. But don't forget, the sustaining activity is still on God. We can't force these things to happen. Third thing, the aptitudes and the talents and the abilities are from God. There's none of us who can just produce these things in and of ourselves. And even if you think, well, says who? You know, I was born a healthy person who was able, who was lots of capacity or whatever. Yeah, you were born. You were given those things as a gift. You didn't will yourself or your capacities into existence. It all, the Bible would claim, flows from him as a good and gracious gift. So in this work, we are dependent on God every step of the way. But nonetheless, it raises another issue, which I don't know how much you think about this, but I want you to think about this. It's that human work is valuable work then. Like if our task is taking the raw materials that God has given and forming them into something, taking them somewhere beautiful and good and in step with God, then the work that we do, every good thing that humans produce has significance and value. Every good thing, and it may be very clear, humans don't exclusively produce good things, okay? 
We, we made the atomic bomb. Like, <laughs> like well, it's actually hyper, I don't know why I'm even joking about that. <laughs> like, we've created the capacity to end all life on this planet. Have you ever thought about that? Humans do not exclusively use this agency that God has given us for good. And there's all kinds of smaller examples of that too. We don't have to go straight for the atomic bomb. But um, nonetheless, every genuinely good thing that humans produce has deep significance and value. I don't know if you ever thought about like, okay, you're all sitting on these various chairs. Some of them are better than others. (laughs) And some of you are feeling that right now. You're like, I thought I made a good choice. That one looked nice to the eye. But uh, I'm having second thoughts. You can move, by the way. There's, you know, you're not locked into that chair. If you see one you like, just ask someone to leave that chair and take it from them. <laughs> but like every, each of these chairs, let's just take one item in this room. Each of these chairs is someone who took, who took a tree. Most of them are made out of wood, or at least have a wood component. A tree and said, I see something that could be used to like, provide comfort and rest to people. And they engineered that chair, some of them better than others, yes, we acknowledge that. They engineered that wood, they, they milled it, they did all the things necessary to make it this functional, beautiful little thing that provides this, this beauty and this value in this world. That's just a little microcosm of this whole idea. Don't dismiss that as like a nothing work. That is, that's tied into the very function God gave us as his people in this world. So every good thing humans produce has value and significance. We can also say every good thing that humans produce can ultimately be thought of as a gift from God as well. For all those reasons we just described. That same chair only exists because God gave the person the creative vision and the ability and the function and the tools to be able to do it. He sustains these processes. He made the trees grow. He allows your arms to work in the way that your brain you know, demands and so on and so forth. These things are not just human. They also represent the divine gift as well. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that beautiful? And I would just say too that this idea has implications for all culture-making endeavors, for your work, for your art, for science and technology and food and on and on and on and on. Every good thing that humans produce has dignity and value, and is ultimately a gift from the God who is behind all of it. That's what I mean. Eden's given to the image bearers, but I hope maybe now this snaps into focus. Eden is given through. Humans are to take this beautiful garden and then to take out and to continue to cultivate the rest of the world that God has given. That was our original mission and purpose. Did you know that? to do that in partnership with him, underneath him, in relationship with him, to the glory of him, and on and on and on. Okay, all three of these messages are going to go the same place because they have to. That's all fine and good, but okay, we've got a third chapter in the Bible, don't we? Genesis 3. Remember that tree? said, don't eat of that one. They do. They do. They reject God's rule. Say, no, God, I think we're going to go about this a different way. We're going to go about this our way. And so the questions that this raises are, what does this mean for the image of God and our work in this world that God had given us? It means a couple of things, but first you have to say, the image of God was wounded by the fall, but it was not lost, as we've already said. There's passages like in 
Genesis 9 that speaks specifically, again, of, it's talking about murder, and it's talking about how this is so scandalous because an image bearer was killed. The image of God was not lost after the fall. It's wounded, it's distorted, it's perverted in some senses, but it is never lost. Human dignity remains. But the work is also hampered as well. The work that comes along with image bearing was hampered as well. I mean, the curse that God provides in Genesis 3, thorns and thistles, it frustrates the work. You go read that chapter. It's difficulty gets introduced into the task that we're given. Difficulty is introduced. Things are harder and worse off now. We sweat and we struggle and we get frustrated with our work. The task is much harder now because of our own sinfulness and because of exterior forces as well. But the image of God is still maintained. What about the task? What about the task of humans? Well, I think this is a little bit more complicated too um, because this side of the, of the fall, you know, especially think about the New Testament, the mission of God begins to all get filtered through Jesus Christ and what his Holy Spirit is up to in the world. Most important thing we can do, if God has chosen to enter the human story and to put all things right and to offer humans salvation, the forgiveness of sins, a way back into right relationship with him after everything's been broken and busted, that's the most important message we have to communicate. You need Jesus. You need the gospel. You need forgiveness. You need reconciliation with the God, with this God of the universe. Of course. But I don't believe that that, that command given to humanity, Genesis 1 and 2, is over. It's not like, okay, now we just preach the gospel and we don't continue the work of building and cultivating in this life. Think of Jesus himself. So many of the questions that Jesus was asked, the theological debates that he entered to, even in the Gospel of Mark that we just spent two years working through, where does Jesus go when he wants to provide answers? So often, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, you've got questions about marriage or whatever. What, what hap- how were things before the fall? I think, it, I think it stands to reason that most theologians agree that this initial kind of command given to humanity, it still stands. All these things before the fall, this is still the task we just have to acknowledge our, our compromise and our brokenness in all of it now. The task is still in effect. But now we have a way back. We have a way back through Jesus, the Son of God, as was mentioned. The Bible speaks of Jesus, you know, as the... As, so what does it look like to fully and without compromise faithfully image God this side of the fall, this side of all of us, carrying sin, sinning. It says, look to Jesus. It uses the language of image specifically. Think of Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the ultimate faithful image bearer. What does it look like to image God faithfully? Now, in this messed up world, look at the perfect son of God. Look at him. So he is he is the faithful image bearer. We look to him then as a, an example and as a model. In Romans 8.29, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be, listen to this, conformed to the image of his son. That's the task that we are, that's set before us, to be conformed to Jesus. He is the model that we are trying to conform ourselves to, rather that he is conforming us to by his power and the work of his spirit. 
But he can't be a model for us and an example for us in any meaningful sense until he's the savior of us. Jesus is the savior. He had, he's the one who can mend the broken image within us. I think that's part of the imagery of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work within us. The Holy Spirit uh, baptizes us when he saves us and the Holy Spirit fills us. He empowers us. He bears fruit in our lives. He bears fruit. It looks very much like the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, when it's born. Jesus is our Savior who deals with things at the fundamental level and then can mend what is broken in us as image bearers from the outside. More than that, we await, well, it's true that Jesus is the king, but we await him to come and to bring his kingdom in full, right? And that's all tied to this stuff as well. Jesus is the king who will bring his kingdom in full. And when it comes in full, that's the day we wait for, the second advent, the return of Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth. But yes, the kingdom of God, Jesus reigning on his throne with sin dealt with, a new glorious beginning where what? There's this glorious garden, but now this glorious city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, the presence of God within it, heaven and, heaven and earth united, God and humanity united in a way that hadn't been. We will image God again. And the implication, I think, of all of it, of all the imagery there in the last two chapters of the Bible is that the work continues afresh. This cultural work of building and cultivating and curating and taking it somewhere. It's as if, you know, the whole story from Genesis 1 and 2, it's like it was wounded. The whole story of redemptive history is how, God, how is God going to deal with this problem of human sin and rebellion and death and injustice and all this stuff? And then you get to Revelation 21 and 22, it's like, okay, now we're back. And it, that's why it's kind of, it, it feels like a new beginning. It is a new beginning. It's not the end of the story. It's like the true beginning of the next story. You know what I'm saying? What we're waiting for is for these bodies of flesh to be perfected and healed and restored and for our sin to be wiped away, our tears to be wiped away, on and on and on. Our, the ways in which we're incapacitated, the ways in which we are marred, the ways in which we're broken and distorted, we wait for it all to be put right by our God through Jesus and his spirit. And then this work will continue, friends. What is the life eternal going to look like? I don't know, but I suspect it's going to look a lot like Genesis 1 and 2 because Revelation 21 and 22 looks a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. There will be good things for us to do, friends. It will be a time to enjoy God, to rule underneath and alongside God, to take his new creation somewhere beautiful and good and wonderful, and to do it in perfect harmony with him and with brother and sister forever. Amen? So this story, we're in a weird, we are in a weird time, friends. The story of human sin has made this all very strange. But it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And by looking ahead, it dignifies that work we do now. And we know that the things that we do now that are good, that are in step with God, that are cultivating alongside him and underneath him and like him, they're of eternal significance. Because all this stuff isn't just gonna burn up. It's gonna be transformed, it's gonna be recreated, it's gonna be resurrected, it's going to be perfected. Amen? Okay. Well, there you go. So what does the song, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, have to do with all of this? Well, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to see, a whole lot.
Jeff Tweedy, as far as I know, is not a Christian. He doesn't probably understand his cosmic task being as one of cultivation, but nonetheless, he's doing it. He's taking the raw materials of the sonic spectrum and sound frequencies, and he's forming them into something more beautiful than what was there before. And if we have the eyes to hear and the <laughs> eyes to hear, the eyes to see, and the ears to hear, maybe the ears are the more important part in this analogy. Uh, we can actually see he is doing something he's not even aware of. He's imaging God. He's imaging God. He's cultivating this world. And even through his art that he probably in no way connects to our God, we see God's grace even on him, supplying him these abilities and these skills. And we can look at that and say, God is good, friends. He's so beautiful. He's so generous. He's so generous. He's worth our worship and our praise. So in this series, you know, we've spent three weeks in the first couple chapters of Genesis. We've been trying to build a theological foundation and introduction to these ideas. And starting next week, we're going to kind of turn towards the practical, how to develop better the eyes to see, the ears to hear these things as we go about our lives. So we'll see you next week as we continue. For now, let's pray.